Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses, welcome once again to Stream Fighter 2 today, covering Obi-Wan Kenobi Episode 3. I don't know if I've ever been simultaneously as excited and disappointed while watching a piece of fictional entertainment in my entire life. And granted, folks, right off the bat, uh, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers if you haven't seen Episode 3 of Obi-Wan Kenobi, I am not disappointed in what I saw. I was a little disappointed in what I heard. And for individuals who have been with us from the very beginning of Stream Fighter 2, our long back catalog of one episode covering Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think you're going to know what I'm talking about. And I'm simultaneously also overjoyed to hear James Earl Jones back as the voice of Darth Vader. It feels right, despite all my inclinations to desperately wanting Hayden Christensen to perform the vocal inflections of Darth Vader in the suit. You know, it meant a lot to me to to get that same performance, but I can definitely, as strange as this might sound, I'm not trying to sound like a Jedi myself, I can interpret Vader's movements, uh, Vader's body language, and I can feel... And it's just sort of a gut feeling, but that's kind of what uh, acting is in a way. I can interpret that as Hayden Christensen's version of Anakin Skywalker within the suit. It just kind of felt correct. And of course, we'll get into that when we reach that portion of the episode. But again, my name is Johnny C, and thank you for joining us here in the Aqua Cave for Stream Fighter 2. Let's talk about Episode 3. So, right from the get-go... There are a couple of real-world scenarios surrounding this series that I think just need to be addressed real quickly. Um, The actress that has been performing Reva, apparently, has been taken to task in social media. Everyone knows the grandest form of all media. Um, What the fuck, 2022 world? Get your head out of your ass. Now, if you want to critique the mustache-twirling level of the performance, okay, It's there. I kind of like that because I think Star Wars is full of mustache-twirling villains. But, well, I was going to say, well, that's a conversation for another show. But that's a conversation for this show. And I'm honestly okay so far with her performance. Um, I I don't take issue with it. And I certainly don't take issue with it for the dumb shit fucking reasons that other people take issue with it. You can just go have fun with yourselves in your rooms alone. Anywho, let's talk about some positives of this episode. Let's just go through the episode and talk about how it entertained us, and let's not worry about the toxic garbage of the real world. So as we begin episode three, Obi-Wan and Leia, Organa, are still on the transport heading to the world where they can find assistance. Obi-Wan is deep in thought, and he is literally begging his master for help. He keeps trying to call to Qui-Gon Jinn through the Force, And I love the parallels here because, you know, you and I, being myself and the person listening, know where this episode goes. And I love that it begins with a Jedi Padawan, I'm using the finger quotes here, calling to his master. Because ultimately, the failure of Obi-Wan as a master will lead us to the final conflict of this episode, as it has, of course, led us to conflicts in earlier Star Wars films. It's just nice synergy, and for an episode of television, it also works as well. But all all of his senses in the Force are clouded, though. He seems to be reliving the message that Reva gave him at the end of Episode 2, that Anakin Skywalker 
is still indeed alive. And there's interesting things here. We hear an audio clip of Yoda, and he, and he says to him, all you will find is pain. Now, because I'm a giant nerd, I know this is an audio clip from Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, but I'm wondering if this is to be interpreted as a new communication between Yoda and Obi-Wan through the Force, uh, basically telling him to get off of this path because... He's only going to experience pain, which will weaken his ability to accomplish his mission. I don't know. That's why there's three more episodes to go in the real world. I also enjoy that this is cross-cut with Darth Vader basically being built from his back-to-tank, putting on his breathing uh, machine, you know, getting the mask on, getting the arms and legs attached. I mean, look, it's... There's no way I can be as poetic or grandiose as the actual episode is itself. So we all know this scene. It was just very cool. You get that one more, like, more zoomed-in shot of Hayden in the back-to-tank. Really, really putting together that underneath the suit is the performance or the character, the actor that we realize carries with us all the weights of episode 2 and 3, whether for positive or negative. I suppose it will differ from viewer to viewer. And as Vader is dressed, you know, to, to, to be silly about it, we return to Mustafar, and Lord Vader is in his fucking throne chair. I mean, this is his castle, this is his throne. Uh, folks, isn't this kind of what we always wanted? He's communicating with Reva over hologram, and this is where we get our first taste of James Earl Jones returning. And I'm very curious, and this anything I'm going to say about uh, vocal technique, sweetening, or what have you is nothing against the performance of James Earl Jones. I think it's fantastic. And when I said in the intro that I was disappointed, please keep in mind, it's just the expectation that I had. I love all this. All right, this is, I mean, I'll call out things I don't like if that ever happens, but this is not to spread negativity. All right, so hear me out on this. I am curious if there were additional techniques used to alter the performance of the Vader voice. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, he sounds very brassy, kind of like how Vader sounds in Return of the Jedi, a little bit of extra bass. And I know that Mr. Jones is older, so I guess that would make sense. But it does have a swipe, a swipe, a slight tinge of that drive-through speaker performance that you get in A New Hope. And I'm not saying that to be a dick, but you know, when you go back and watch A New Hope, Vader's vocal processing, whatever you want to call it, is certainly a little bit different than it is in the other episodes. Now, you could equate this to technology. Probably that's literally all it is. There's no sort of in-universe explanation. Although it's Star Wars, so there might be. But I'm kind of getting a mixture of that from this vocal performance of James Earl Jones. And I'm really here for it because, you know, this is, after all, Vader early in his career. So he should be closer to A New Hope than he is to The, uh, the Rise of Skywalker in terms of his vocal sounds. I also think that two very clear choices have been made here in the directing of James Earl Jones as a voice actor, okay? I believe that there was a choice, I believe, it sounds to me, okay, as if James Earl Jones is making a choice to emphasize certain word choices based on how Hayden Christensen did as a performer in episode two and three. Now, flip side of that, I'm a jackass who's podcasting in suburban America and James, you know, making up cool nerd, cool in quotation marks, making up nerd theories, whereas James Earl Jones might just be sitting there reading shit into the microphone. I don't know. And I, again, 
I might be reading too much into it. I might be giving it too much credit. I like to think that actors do give a shit about their craft, you know, and they like to get paid too. Who the hell doesn't? So I don't know. But in case Mr. Jones isn't making that choice, I do have this other point. I believe that the Darth Vader character's dialogue has been somewhat written in the, in quotation marks, grandiose language that the prequels use. The the way that the Jedi speak or that you're high society senators, like there's just a sort of different tone to the prequel era dialogue. Now, I'm not an idiot. I realize a lot of that's because it's written by George Lucas, but I also think there is some subtlety to the art there in a sense that these characters sort of exist at a time and place where everyone, well, not everyone, where a large majority of characters haven't had your Han Solo, roguish, scoundrel-type existence. We're dealing with high society senators, the Jedi Knights, who are the top of their religious order. You know, these are high society types, and I think that they have a high speak. And no, this isn't the Dark Tower. I think, uh, you know, I think I've kind of... I don't want to beat this point into the ground, but I think that kind of makes sense. So I am getting a cool... Anakin Skywalker feel from James Earl Jones, which is not something that I've gotten in the past, obviously, because it didn't exist. All we really have is that little snippet in Episode 3, and he does... It was very cool to hear Darth Vader in the suit with the breathing say the word Padme, because he would never say Padme in Episodes 4, 5, and 6. So, you know, anything like that that we get, I'm all here for, guys. Let's keep it going. And of course... Hayden Christensen as the Darth Vader body stares into the abyss as only he can do. Really good stuff here. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I also love when, so because we go back to the ship and Obi-Wan and Leia have to have a little chat here, okay? And this was a, a great clear-cut example of how Ewan McGregor is clearly playing two different characters here, alright? So, his Ben Kenobi persona is obviously less regal and kingly and grand, as I sort of just went into a big shtick about. So I'm glad that I linked these two thoughts together. But he, Ben Kenobi doesn't speak in that manner, and he also sort of doesn't react with the restraint that a quote-unquote Jedi Knight does. Ben Kenobi is a bit more emotional and less willing to sort of put up with the nonsense, it seems like. Ben Kenobi gets to field the questions like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Which Leia does ask him, are we there yet? And he's like, I don't know, it's a dro- goddamn, goddamn droids driving, Leia. Leave me alone. But when they talk about the Force, you know, ben, the Ben Kenobi kind of subtly transitions to Obi-Wan Kenobi. We're going to talk about the Force now. I lived in that skin basically my entire life. Oh, you want to talk about the Force? Well, then I'll I'll sound like my old self and not the, the truck driver dad who yelled at you earlier. Uh, nothing against truck drivers. It's just the first thing that popped into my head. But I, I like that. You know, Obi-Wan has been repressing who he really is for so long that he is a unique hybrid of both Ben and Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is really making me love this Ben disguise, something I've never been too fond of in the original trilogy. And, you know, the best thing I can equate it to, like in a in, a, in like a real-world scenario, just to put a bow on this thought, is that if you're at like a, a fancy hoity-toity work dinner, uh, and not that you can't act like yourself, but you're probably 
you probably have your guard up just a little bit, not in a way that you're like defensive, but just you want to be on your quote unquote best behavior, etc., etc. And then uh, you're done talking shop, and all of a sudden someone casually mentions baseball, and a baseball discussion starts. Well, gosh, I love baseball. Then your your guard kind of comes down a little bit, and you just kind of open up and start talking a bit more freely about baseball, which is sort of how Ben lets his guard down and lives as himself. You get to see a little bit more of who he is as a living, breathing in quotation marks, person when he speaks to her about the Force. And I love the example of the light switch or the lights turning on. This Obi-Wan-Leia uh, relationship, this this bond they have in being in this tense ordeal, I just think they play well off of, off of one another. You know, another real-world scenario to, to pivot back to the beginning is I haven't seen, like, toxic, awful things said about this this little gal who's playing Leia. I've seen critiques of their performance, which I think is fair. Honestly, I might be a little too easy on the performance, but I really enjoy this young Padme-Anakin hybrid version of the Leia character. It's doing a lot for me, and so I love little moments like where Obi-Wan, not Ben, fixes the droid, Lola that is, and gives it to Leia, and she's very excited. I don't know. It's just a nice little moment. It does honestly more for me. I mean... Mando and Grogu, to pivot to The Mandalorian, the other Star Wars show that's like Lone Wolf and Cub, there's a there's a different type of bond there because Grogu, of course, doesn't speak or communicate in a traditional manner that you know we would get in a script where two characters are talking to one another. So it's a bit more primal. This feels more like an actual, like, I don't want to call it a parent-child relationship, because, uh, number one, he's not her dad. Number two, I'm not a shrink. Uh, but I don't know. I kind of get a little bit more reality. God, that would just feel so strange to talk about when you're talking about Star Wars. But after all, we're analyzing this. Um, so I, I like it a lot. It does good. I get positive vibes from it. I do from The Mandalorian as well. These are just different types of positive vibes. They do eventually arrive on planet Mapuzo, uh, which is a mining system. It just kind of looks like planet New Mexico to me. And I've never been to New Mexico, but I've seen every episode of Breaking Bad. So I'm, I'm going to stick to it. But this is a dead giveaway uh, from a real-world perspective. Somebody in the Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi writing room has got to be a massive fan of author and screenwriter Mario Puzo, right? I mean, the planet's called Mapuzo. Uh, Mario Puzo, if anyone doesn't know, wrote like The Godfather and uh, its sequels. Also, uh, the original screenplay for Superman the motion picture which became Superman the motion picture and Superman 2 directed by Richard Donner and there's all kinds of deep diving shit you can do about that if you're interested but like I said someone in the writer's room clearly was there's the fantastic moment on this planet where they, they can't find their contact and Obi-Wan or Ben excuse me believes that there there's no one coming and, and Leia says why would he lie and Ben retorts with a ferocious people are not all good Leia that's a really shitty Ewan McGregor impression but it's interesting to me that he gets his his response is so emotionally laden again showing that the Ben character doesn't have the restraint of a Jedi it's just interesting and really great character work from Ewan McGregor here they do talk a little politics as they walk and it reminds me of all the times that uh, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine would talk to Anakin Skywalker about politics. And of course, Anakin Skywalker at this time was like a teenager and a little more uh, adapt to the world, 
you know, but he, he is a sheltered Jedi. And, and it's interesting because you, you see this in the real world all the time with uh, kids just sort of repeating the words that their parents say about politics. So I'm curious if any of Obi-Wan's uh, disenfranchised views toward the Empire end up shaping the Leia character. Because at this time, she's just a 10-year-old, and, you know, if she probably believes whatever she hears Bail Organa say, because, you know, that's that's what being a kid is. Um, so I don't know. I just found that interesting. And you want to talk about interesting... Nine minutes and nine seconds into this show, we get Obi-Wan Kenobi having a vision of Darth Vader watching him on the planet Mapuzo. And yes, it is Darth Vader as portrayed by Hayden Christensen as he appeared in the latter half of Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith with the hood up. Because when, when Anakin's got that hood up and glued to his head, because by God... If you ever played the Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith game on PlayStation 2, that hood's not moving at all when you're playing as Darth Vader. That shit is glued to his skull. Um, but you do get a haunting vision. And, I mean, what can you say about Hayden Christensen just fucking bringing it as in a two-second uh, cameo in his own body? Meanwhile, in Fortress Inquisitorius... Which might be the coolest two words in the English language when put together in such a way. Um, and, and I think, you know, I'm not going to pursue any legal discourse, but this surprisingly looks just like my Aqua Cave, where I record all these shows. Um, but like I said, I'm not going to pursue any legal action. I'll let it slide. These guys can have their own Aqua Cave. Reva arrives at the fortress, and I really enjoy the subtlety of having all the stormtroopers and imperial personnel that enter her field of vision. They sort of stand at attention and get out of her way. It's just nice uh, sort of symbolizing that these inquisitors do command a Vader level of respect. Now, Reva eventually makes contact with the fifth brother and the fourth sister, and they argue over the chain of command and what Darth Vader wants, etc., etc., the fifth brother indicates that he's next in line, which raises all sorts of questions about numerology, but I don't care. I'll let it go, because really, honestly, it doesn't bug me. Apparently, I, I don't know, like, maybe it has to do with when you joined, like, maybe the fifth brother was the fifth male to join, and there were only two, I don't know, I don't know about the chain of command here, and I don't really care. The important piece of information is that Reva, you know, claims to have Vader's uh, desires at her command, and she wants to send out the stank with the bank ends. And if you don't know what a stank with the bank end is, it's an imperial probe droid. And they're stank with the bank ends because that's what they say. And it's probably not verbatim what they say, but I've been saying that shit since I was a kid, so to see the imperial probe droid from Empire come back really makes me smile. Now, talking about language again, Reva talks and inflects things just like Anakin Skywalker did. She's I mean she obviously has to be that Jedi youngling from episode from the first episode of this show, right? Cuz she says send out the probes, do it now. But she says it just like Anakin would with that sort of unique inflection. Send out the probes, do it now. It's a really bad impression or characterization, but it's just it's, it's a unique choice. Um, and also, just to pivot back to what I talked about in the first episode of this show, 
The fact that Darth Vader and Reva are speaking directly to one another about Obi-Wan Kenobi really kills my theory that she's just doing this on her own to try to, you know, draw them into a confrontation so she can take over the Inquisitors. Um, So we'll see where this goes moving forward. Moving forward back to Mapuzo, Obi-Wan and Leia still trying to figure things out here on this mid-rim mining planet that's been stripped of its resources by the Empire. And the Ben Kenobi character has sort of taken over the Anakin Skywalker role and just doesn't have any patience. You know, he 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 seems to be, you know, he has one foot out the door. Uh, he's not willing to wait for the potential contact to arrive. So Leia, you know, takes things under her own uh, control. And, and she wants to to get a hitch a ride from this sort of mining truck. And I love the concept here because, and the character's name is Freck, the individual who's driving the, this truck. Leia has an intuition that he, fe- he seems nice. Okay? And I love this because it harkens back to that very black and white characterization that Anakin Skywalker, when he's portrayed by Jake Lloyd in The Phantom Menace, gives to individuals individuals, excuse me, that he encounters. Like when he meets Qui-Gon for the very first time, he has a very black and white view of Qui-Gon Jinn because he's a Jedi, even though he doesn't know anything about him. But I'm sure that he can sort of sense the goodness or the light emanating from Qui-Gon. And what I like about this in comparison to Freck is that Leia's not wrong. Freck does seem like a pretty nice dude, and I mean that. But the problem is, is that Freck is nice within his own value system. And Leia's not being as attuned to her ability to wield the Force keeps that out of her purview. You know, it's interesting to me. This Freck character, which is a funny sort of, you know, good old Midwestern folk character, he's a nice dude. I don't think Freck means any ill will. As long as you fall within his belief system, which happens to be that the Empire is a good thing. And and I love this. I love that, you know, I, I jokingly said that he's like good old Midwestern folk, but he's just using the information he has at hand. He's a simple dude trying to make his way in the universe, as a bounty hunter once said. So, they're in the truck with Freck, and he's given him a lift. And they encounter a group of stormtroopers, and these have to be the nicest stormtroopers in uh, Star Wars history, because they actually say things like "thank you," and they're nice to Freck, and they're just conversational. You know, are the? It's just interesting to me that, you know, even though these stormtroopers do eventually, quote unquote, interrogate Ben and Leia. They are stormtroopers, so I'm not trying to be like, oh, these guys are nice. It's just interesting to me that we're encountering stormtroopers that exude some positivity towards other individuals. I really, really do like this. Um, when they are interrogated on the truck, okay, it's, it's such a great showcase for Ewan McGregor as an actor, you know, especially when he's, they're, they're, they're contriving this story about how they came to visit uh, the spot where the farmer that Ben Kenobi is pretending to be met his wife. And they have this this great moment where, again, Ewan McGregor gets to portray two characters in one sentence. He says, Sometimes when I look at Luma, which is supposed to be Leia's name, 
I see her mother's face. So the sometimes when I look is clearly Ben Kenobi, and then I see her mother's face is Obi. And earlier, there was a bad, and this is, like I said, if I see something bad, I'm going to call it out. There is an honest-to-goodness moment of bad kid acting. When Obi-Wan accidentally calls Luma Leia, there's a really bad acting moment where the actress portraying Leia is waiting for the stormtrooper to be like, Hey, you just called her Leia! And her... She kind of stutters and makes like a vocal sound and her face is all over the place. It's just bad. It's bad acting. She redeems herself instantly when Obi-Wan says, I see her mother's face. She clearly feels his Padme memory and it's all over her face. All right. And that's something I really want to point out because you make a, you know, you make a poor choice as an actor. Okay, it happens. It gets into the final cut. Well, it happens. And but she instantly redeems herself, in my opinion. I also love that when the stormtroopers, who were kind of nice, get off of the truck, they start talking about T-16s. Leia believes that Ben Kenobi knew her mom, and then even asks him, "Are you my real father?" It's heartbreaking. It's fantastic character development that Leia's clearly just going off her intuition, but we know she's a force wielder, so her intuition is the force. It's really, really cool stuff. And I also love that we're clearly aware that she is aware that she's an adopted child, and it's almost a cool little retcon of Return of the Jedi. There's always been that scene where Leia's... um, you know, talking to Luke, and he's like, what do you know about your mother, your real mother? And she's like, well, she died when I was very young. I have to imagine that Bail Organa and his wife probably told Leia, you know, when she was old enough to talk with them, that, you know, maybe they adopted Leia when she was like one or two, or, you know, uh, shortly after she was born because her mother died of childbirth complications. And she claims to have memories of her mother, just flashes here and there. I kind of feel like she probably does have these memories because she has absorbed them from other characters in this saga that knew Padme. And I'm not saying she like sucked it out like some sort of beast or demon, like I will steal your memories. It just happened through osmosis accidentally. So she can see Padme occasionally in her mind. But the people around her probably try to you know, keep Padme out of their minds lest they slip up because they know that Jedi, or Jedi, goodness, that Leia is Force-attuned and has Jedi abilities. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I I like to think that it's the case. And Obi-Wan starts talking about his memories as a youngling. And he talks about how when he was taken from his family, not taken so much in a negative way, but the Jedi became his new family when he lost his original family. And what the hell is this shit about a brother? I can't even get into that. There's not enough time in the day. All right, But I like how this frames... his. The Jedi became his new family, and he trained at the Jedi Temple. I kind of like how this frames that Luke and Leia have their own training they have to uh, or go, forego or undergo, if you will. Leia's training being her life on Alderaan, preparing to be a senator and tackling the problems of the galaxy through that means, whereas Luke's training is putting up with the fact that he's isolated on tattooing. That's what Luke needs. Because Anakin didn't get humbled enough 
And, and I don't mean that to... It's like, good lord, man. The kid, he was a child slave. You're telling me that he's not a humble character? Well, okay. Maybe that's not the best word choice. But, you know, Anakin's longing for excitement and to have adventures sort of was part of his downfall. And maybe Luke became a little more used to it by all these years in isolation. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he didn't turn, because he valued uh, the power that he now felt. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but it's something that I felt. Eventually, Luke and Leia, and, or Luke and Leia, goodness, Obi-Wan and Leia and Freck uh, come upon another, like, uh, checkpoint, if you will. The probe droid arrives, t- snaps a pic of old Ben Kenobi, and, of course, a fight breaks out where Ben conducts himself in such an uncivilized manner by taking out these troopers with a blaster. I also find it hard to believe that Ben Kenobi felt like uh, when the when the stormtroopers eventually got the upper hand on him and he sort of like kneels down and accepts his fate. I don't this is and this is a another shot I'm taking at this episode. They're few and far in between, but they do exist. Does the Ben Kenobi character really believe that this is an unwinnable scenario? I don't know. But the answer comes to him as he is rescued by a new character. And I recognize the actress. So this actress is Indira Varma, who played uh, Illyria Sand on Game of Thrones. And I should add that on Game of Thrones, she was the actress that played the Paramore, as the Ewan McGregor version of Black Mask would say, of Prince Oberon... Yes, I've lost everyone who doesn't know Game of Thrones at this point, but Prince Oberon was indeed played by Din Djarin himself, Pedro Pascal. So we've got a nice little uh, family unit here, a little Star Wars Game of Thrones crossover, if you will, and I thought that was kind of fun. But this actress is playing a character named Tala, who is a... Imperial officer that is a Jedi slash rebellion, even though the rebellion, I guess, isn't a thing yet, sympathizer. So she's on the side of the good after spending some time on the side of the dark. And she was indeed Obi-Wan and Leia's contact that was here to rescue them. Meanwhile, back in the fortress Inquisitoris, which is just maybe the most fun thing to say ever, we find out that the fifth brother has told Darth Vader that the probe droid probe droid, easy for me to say, did indeed locate Obi-Wan on the planet Mapuzo. Now, at this point, the the, the Inquisitors just kind of bicker and argue amongst themselves, and I just can't help but think in the back of my head that, and especially, th- this is kind of an informed opinion after the fact, but seeing how brutal, violent, and just driven this particular version of Darth Vader is... This has to be what he wants, right? If the Inquisitors are constantly at odds with one another, he doesn't have to ever worry about one of them trying to take his spot. But these Inquisitors are just, they're like kids at school compared to Vader. You know, Vader's big, big Billy badass, and these guys are just little Lucy losers. I don't know. This is a made-up registered trademark of the Aquacave Incorporated in case that ever takes off. But meanwhile, back on Mapuzo, Obi-Wan and Leia are laying low, if you pardon the expression. They have uh, entered into sort of like a, a, a hide house, a, a place where they can sort of hide out. And they do meet Tala's droid, uh, a Ned B. Kind of looks like the Iron Giant. 
And I dig that the Skywalker family seems to have a soft spot for droids, uh, considering Luke's love of R2, Anakin's creation of 3PO, and of course later love of R2. And here we've got Leia, who wishes Ned B could talk, even though actions speak louder than words, which is an interesting uh, theme of this episode as well. Uh, and of course Leia has Lola as well. And this organization, this underground railroad, if you will, um, is called the PATH. And what it is, is a system of which uh, is in place to help Jedi escape, basically, and, and find new identities, okay? And I love the contrast here that sort of pops into my head, because for years, you know, we've had an idea of Obi-Wan and Yoda in exile, and it's sort of romanticized in a sense that it's like, oh, yes, you know, we'll take the children, hide them, and then we'll train them when the time is right, and everything will be just fine. But while they're away in exile, and granted, they aren't living a romantic existence, uh, Yoda's in a swamp with no one to talk to, and uh, Obi-Wan's in a desert with no one to talk to, and he has a shitty job and a shitty day, but when your feet are on the ground in the middle of the conflict, this really is a messy scenario. And I kind of feel like Obi-Wan and Yoda get off easy, if you pardon the expression, because this isn't the reality that they live in. So I really appreciate Obi-Wan getting a smack of reality across his face. Like, the galaxy is a fucked up place now, and I'm glad you're watching those kids, but we could really use somebody like you right about now. And uh, Talat indicates that the Imperials have been hunting down Force-sensitive kids. All right? And the reason I bring this up specifically is not only because it's horrifying and also interesting world-building. At one point here in a few moments, uh, after they discuss, after the adults, that is, in the room, talk about how the Empire is hunting down Force-sensitive children, Leia makes an interesting comment to Tala. She asks her an interesting question. She says... Is it scary having to pretend? Now, on surface level, she's really referring to sort of the, the dual identity uh, as Imperial officer, spy, rebel, Jedi helper. You know, there's all sorts of different hats that this new character is wearing. But I sort of interpreted it as Leia wondering if it's scary to pretend because she feels that she might be Force-sensitive. And she needs to know if it's easy to pretend because she doesn't want to get taken from her family if she ever gets back to them on Alderaan, that is. And it's this great sort of, if they choose it to be, like a character-defining moment. Because I do think that Leia looks up to Tala. She sees her as a role model. She's an empowered female character who's taken the reins and protected her protector because she's helping Obi-Wan, whom is supposed to be helping her. So, I could see Leia being influenced by this Tala character as being a, a two-face, if you will. Not, not in the Seinfeld or Batman convention, but someone who presents an exterior, but on the inside is trying to accomplish something different. She is a Force-sensitive child. She will be a senator. She will be a rebel leader. But, you know, she only really displays one of these roles at a time, depending on what scenario she's in. So it's beautiful foreshadowing to the fact that Leia herself will spend most of her life having to pretend. 
I really loved it. And, you know, I suppose you could pull me aside and say, Johnny, that's great, but I just want to know if this was a fun episode to watch. And I'm telling you, it was a fun episode to watch because of shit like this. Taking, you know, analyzing verbatim what we've been shown and given on our screens is, you know, the same way that folks break down classic novels and and reinterpret them over the years. You know, it's just open to interpretation, and that's what I love about art. So I'm going to spend a little bit extra time covering stuff like that. Um, so we don't get too much further into this underground railroad scenario. Uh, well, I do want to, I should probably uh, mention Obi Wan does mention uh, Quinlan Voss as a survivor of the Jedi Purge. This character, not familiar with, you can find resources and information and videos all about it wherever things like that are found. Obi Wan freezes and starts to have himself a little panic attack basically and i mean he's here a couple of stormtroopers flank out throughout the city streets and with very little imperial nonsense or fanfare literally like there's not a big hoopla made and they don't play the imperial march which is totally fine darth vader is not only here on the planet but he's just yards away from Obi-Wan Kenobi, all right? And they can feel one another. It's clear. And Obi-Wan, or Ben, perhaps I should say, is straight up just hiding. Hiding from the Sith Lord. And I think it's a great character choice. Um, Because not only has he been living a lie under the impression that his pupil is dead, but it's a frightening concept to go up against a Sith at the height of his powers, fueled by anger in his quest for revenge, because he's against, he's literally going to face off against his old master, the person he blames the most for his own failures. And Obi-Wan's been out of practice for about 10 years. And I, I'm, I'm going to try to convey this to you, the listener, but I could absolutely sense the actor in the Vader costume, that being Hayden Christensen, portraying his version of Anakin Skywalker as Darth Vader marches through this town. And, you know, Vader's kind of looking around, and he's breathing, as a person's known to do, but of course we can hear when Lord Vader breathes. He inhales, just because it's time to inhale, and then he pauses, contemplates, and it's a decently long pause, He now knows for certain that Obi-Wan is here because he feels him. And then, a very fantastic exhale. Showing us that, you know, it it wasn't just us that pause in frozen time. The living, breathing person that this actor is portraying had sort of a... (gasps) (sighs) He is here. Like, I've got him. It's just, it's a brilliant choice in sound design because they can do whatever they want with a soundtrack they could put in music they could put in uh, a freaking uh you know a jazz flute they they could do whatever they want they could do a slide whistle they could do like they could i mean it's their show but they've chosen to emphasize the exhale which tells us that the character was having a like a moment of realization, excitement, just sort of a hesitation, but not in a negative way, a positive hesitation. It was just beautiful. He says not a word. 
And we've seen character beats like this in film and television all throughout history, uh, specifically Westerns. You know, you've got the evil guy who's in charge of the town. He goes into the saloon and he, he starts grabbing folks and he's like, well, I'm going to kill somebody until you show up, gunslinger. Vader doesn't even have to do that. Vader's above that level of evil. He just starts punishing these innocent townspeople to draw out Obi-Wan. He pulls a dad or a father, at least that's the, 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 uh, what I get of the character, out of his fucking window and starts choking him on the ground. The son of this person runs into the street to confront Lord Vader. Vader force pushes him and with a minuscule movement of his fingers breaks this child's neck. In full view of the camera, it's it's horrifying, yes, but it's absolutely perfect because this, in connection with the fact that we know that Hayden Christensen is playing the Darth Vader character and we've been able to pick up on the subtleties of the Anakin Skywalker character within the Vader components, this gives us our killing younglings moment, but live and in the flesh, and from New York at Saturday night, because I said it's live. But we didn't get to see Darth Vader kill those younglings. Uh, and I'm not saying we need to. I'm not trying to glorify something like that. But what I am saying is that when we have all these connections in our mind, we see him brutally execute this child with a force neck break. It really sets a tone that you can never come back from. And I appreciate that. It, it, it shows that this show... To pardon the expression, has buy-in to the villainy of this character. I mean, we knew that. We know Darth Vader's the villain, but this is on a whole another level. And Vader continues to torture these people. All right, and I do notice here as he's doing this, the mask design choice for Vader actually, in my opinion, and for reasons I can't really explain, makes the Darth Vader character look like a younger version of Darth Vader. Then he appears in the 4, 5, and 6. Like, I can't quantify this. I can only give you my gut feelings. But when you really combine all this, it's... I'm literally looking at Anakin Skywalker. The pieces are connected in my brain, and it's providing a much more visceral experience for me as a viewer of television. Eventually, as has to happen in these shows, Obi-Wan and Darth Vader come into physical contact with one another. It's after Obi-Wan has ignited has ignited, excuse me, his lightsaber. We get some fantastic fantastic camera work and lighting centered around the blue light reflecting upon him. And they finally finally lock eyes and Darth Vader ignites that crimson lightsaber. Uh, it really brings the fear to Obi-Wan and us as the viewer. And Obi-Wan says, "What have you become?" And then, if they could give an Oscar or an Emmy just for voice work, this is the line that does it. Because not only does James Earl Jones get across a multitude of emotions, he perfectly emulates Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. It's a broken record, folks. That's what I am, because I keep beating it into the ground. But God damn it, it's here. I am what you made me now i added a, maybe a milliseconds of more dramatic pausing but go back and listen to that line specifically and you tell me that it's not an emulation of anakin skywalker uh the jedi and i will buy you a steak dinner if you can prove it 
and I won't actually do that. But let's let, let's go through this. You know, I don't mean to to drag this episode out as long as I possibly can. But if but if you guys can't tell, I'm having a damn good time talking about it. Tala and Leia. Uh, are going through these underground tunnels, trying to get Leia to safety. Obi-Wan has entrusted Leia to Tala, basically accepting his own inevitable death by making her promise he that she, being Tala, will get Leia to Alderaan. Um, eventually, Tala sends Leia on her way and realizes she's going to have to go back and help Obi-Wan because they might need a Jedi with his uh, level of, of power. Um, there's also some fantastic... Uh, Anakin Skywalker portrayal here during the lightsaber battle as they come to blows and Vader sort of pushes Obi-Wan away with the force and then the camera goes behind Darth Vader and he sort of does like a, a pivot step walk just the same way that the Anakin Skywalker character did on Mustafar before Obi-Wan and Anakin's like hands touch and the giant flame erupts behind them you can't tell me that this wasn't done purposefully I don't believe it I, I, after these three episodes, I have too much faith in the creative minds behind this show. Um, Vader tells Obi-Wan, You should have killed me when you had the chance, Charles Xavier. Which is just a Magneto line, and I don't even care because I love Magneto almost as much as I love Vader, so I'm going to allow it. Darth Vader has himself a Memorial Day barbecue. Um, he suspends Obi-Wan in air with the Force... And he lets him hover there for a few extra seconds. He's really enjoying his work. He sets some of the mining material aflame and throws Obi-Wan into the fire. Now you will suffer, Obi-Wan. It's not so much a confident declaration as much as it sounds like a person who is about to get what they have always wanted. But he also sounds a little fearful that this is it, in my opinion. It's really hard to live in a moment that you've lived over and over in your mind incessantly. It's like if you plan a family vacation for a really long time and you save up and it's the place everybody's always wanted to go and you spend most of your time there trying to figure out why the vacation isn't living up to what it was in your mind. Well, it can't because it's reality and you have to live in the moment. And I feel like this Darth Vader character maybe isn't ready to give up or to purge this desire he's had for a long time. And it's almost as if to give him what he subconsciously wants, Tala rescues Obi-Wan and sets an even larger fire. And I get this crazy Frankenstein's monster feel that Darth Vader doesn't want to go through the flames. Maybe it's because he wants to play with his food a little bit more. Maybe it's because he's frightened of the fire. I'll take either one because both work for me as a viewer. I just, I can't give this enough credit. Uh, we, we spend just a few more moments with Riva. She's now in the underground uh, hiding area. She sees the old emblem of the Jedi in the Old Republic, and she is furious at this. And wouldn't you know, she encounters a young, frightened Princess Leia who finds the pilot of the transport ship that was to take her to Alderaan dead. And now we have an Obi-Wan who's decimated, burned a little bit, and cannot have uh, any sense that he stands any chance against Darth Vader in his mind. He has to be absolutely emotionally, mentally, and uh, somewhat physically at a disadvantage the next time they meet, if God willing, they do. And that ends this episode 
of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Lots of fun, fun hooks hanging for the next potential three episodes. Well, not potential, for the next three episodes. The first thing that I'm wondering is, will we see young Leia talk to Darth Vader? We know in A New Hope, his reputation precedes him. As she says, Darth Vader, only you would be so bold. <laughs> in the English accent that she thought about using for Princess Leia here and there. Um, you know, but that could be by reputation, or it could be because she's been his captive once before. There's a hundred of other danging plot threads I can't wait to tackle, and we'll tackle those when we actually see those episodes. So, I'm going to give this episode a 10 out of 10, because not only was it an entertaining almost hour of television, it leaves so much open to interpretation if a person chooses to go down that road. I'm that type of person. I'm going to go down that road. And I can't wait to rewatch this episode after I have the whole series in place to see if some of the symbolism or uh, touch points that I talked about were indeed the intent of the writers. Um, it's just, I really can't wait. Remember what I said in the first episode. Subtract about a point and a half if you want an unbiased interpretation. Uh, because, you know, like I said, I'm a massive fan. I can't wait to see what happens next. My only regret is knowing that someday this series will have to end, and uh, that will be that. So, also, I'm going to leave you with this note. I know now, in the real world, that the Freck alien character was played by Zach Braff from Garden State. But damn it, didn't it sound like Seth Rogen just for a second? Just for a real hot second, didn't it sound like it was Seth Rogen? Well, I might be crazy, as this episode of Stream Fighter 2 has revealed to the audience, but if I'm crazy, I'm crazy about Obi-Wan, and I will see you the next time we enter this arena to battle against Obi-Wan Kenobi on Stream Fighter 2. <laughs>